0: Good to see you, as always. Uh, Ashoff, thank you for the gracious introduction. Uh, It is true. I am a a fan. I'm the middle-aged guy, usually standing over there at the basketball games, screaming my face off. Uh, NAIA produces superior athletes uh, and inferior officiants. (laughs) So I'm trying to represent Jesus to them and... The Lord is a Lord of justice. (laughs) And he doesn't like when the scales are off balance. And so, I'm just helping. Just doing my part as a fan, Um, that's all. So that's kind of my defense, my apology. Saw Lawrence Russell on the billboard, right outside there, that's cool. His nickname needs to be billboard. If that hasn't happened, you guys are doing it wrong. Has it happened? Daryl, has that happened? It has happened? Good. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) He's billboard, like for life. So good. Uh, The team is a lot of fun to watch. They have fun when they play, and basketball is a sport that is divinely blessed. It just has all the components of creational wisdom in it. I can't justify that yet, but I'm going to work on it. A different sermon today we'll do Psalm 40 instead we open your Bible to Psalm 40 Psalm 40 I'm turning 37 next week for the last three years i have been turning 37 and so I want to preach Psalm 40 in honor of that I'll begin by reading it to you I, I think this is a really interesting song It's one that's familiar to you if you're from the old school and there's no school but the old school uh, it's hard to read this without thinking of the plaintive voice of bono singing these words on an album about a million years ago and it's familiar though because it's just classic language of the psalms and i think all believers connect with these psalms these are lyrical masterpieces this is poetic beauty And you'll recognize the rhythms and cadence of the speech of Psalm 40. I'll read it to you. The superscription is for the choir director, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which You have done and Your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with You. If I would declare and speak of them, They would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, You know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those, who, let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the living God. And today we have the opportunity to pray with David, to, to learn from that songwriter, shepherd boy, king, and this is a song, I think, that has familiar content to us. It's also a song that's, that's typical in some ways, language that's familiar to you. The blessedness of the man sounds like Psalm 1. The whole end of this psalm is, is copied and repeated in Psalm 70. The idea of waiting patiently for God... The concept of a new song being sung is something from Psalm 33, so there's a lot of common material that if you've paged around in the Psalms, you've you've seen these kinds of words, so it's familiar. But when you study Psalm 40, you start to realize that it's different, and that its direction is, what some scholars think, off. In fact, lots of critical scholars have looked at Psalm 40, and they see it not as an original composition, but as a, a few mashed-together songs. It just has too many genres going on. It's country music and gangster rap mixed together, and, and it's throwing them off. What I mean is the beginning is a Thanksgiving song. It's a typical testimony of praise and delight and celebration. It's ordinary, but by the end of the song... He's in trouble again, and so instead of being a sustained thanksgiving psalm or a sustained lament psalm, it has kind of all of these components to it. He's confessing his sin in these latter verses, his weakness in the final verse. It begins in a pit, and then he comes out, and and he's singing praises to God, and then at the end, he's slipping back into danger again, and so because of that, some have not really understood the message of this song, but if you've ever tried to pray in a time when life just feels like a pit, I think you understand Psalm 40 and understand its unity as a composition. This is a sermon on Psalm 40, and the title of it is is When Life is the Pits." And that may sound grumpy cat or a little depressing, unless you came from Seattle, nothing is depressing to you. Because everything is depressing to you, <laughs> rainy and gray soul that you are. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to get you emotionally, you know, downcast here, but I do want to be realistic, and Psalm 40 is very good at that. Getting in the mud, in a miry pit, in the slimy clay as he describes it, is an experience that will be a refrain throughout a Christian's life. This isn't pertaining to your temperament or your emotional constitution. I saw a headline yesterday. Someone tried to bring an emotional support peacock onto a plane and was turned away. It doesn't matter what kind of feathered friend you need for emotional support. Emotional support peacock would be an awesome band name, by the way. Just Seattle band, maybe it could be. I mean, this is just the reality of life in a fallen world. Psalm 40 is a fallen world song. It's, it's on this side of Eden that we recognize that sometimes we have a song to sing because God saved us and rescued us from a time of trouble. And before our song is over, we're in trouble again. And sometimes that's self-caused because of our own sin like it was with, with David here, and sometimes it's because of those who are against us, as it was with David here, and sometimes it's just circumstantial, but whatever it is, life is full of hills and, and valleys, and Psalm 40 really is a triumphant song. If you're following the flow of the psalm, Psalm 37 is even darker and even more desperate and the psalmist is, is feeling like a dying plant and he's aware of the evil around him. And, and by 38 and 39, it's sort of the book of Ecclesiastes, the vanity of life in Psalm 39, the suffering penitence of Psalm 38. So Psalm 40 has a ring of triumph to it. But like all triumphs in this life, they're short-lived. And so I want to talk to you about when life is the pit's. And whether your troubles are self-inflicted or circumstantial or brought on by a hostile world, when life is the pits, we have to know how to respond and what to expect. And so let's join King David in this song. I don't think this poem is a mess. I think this world is a mess. And I think that this poem is perfectly suitable to help us think clearly about God, about ourselves, and about our circumstances. There's something genuine and heartfelt about this song. And Psalm 40, what it does for us is it teaches us to celebrate past deliverance. It teaches us that experiencing God's mercy ought to lead us to lead others to rejoice in God's mercy. And it reminds us that that mercy that rescued us is that same mercy that we will need throughout our lives. Because life is not going to get easier for you, my friend. For most of you, the darkest days of your life are ahead of you. And to learn to celebrate God's mercy in the past deliverances is to teach yourself where you need to go when you're in trouble. You see, we can triumph like Psalm 40 does in deliverance from past trials and testify to God's rescue and learn to obey Him and learn that obedience is better than sacrifice and learn to proclaim Him even in the midst of our trials and learn to confess our sin knowing that we are not perfect and this world is not perfect and we can still anticipate future rescue, future deliverance, future salvation from future trouble. The message of this song is that even when God answers prayer and provides relief verses 1 through 10 there usually is a new crisis on the horizon that forces us to return yet again to God as our refuge and as our deliverer so let's look at this song in three movements verses 1 through 4 will recount God's deliverance verses 1 through 4 recounting God's deliverance verse 1 patiently waiting isn't strong enough. The Hebrew is something like waiting I waited. He doubles down on his waiting. There's an intensity to it. He's not just in line at the DMV here. This is a different kind of experience. It's not a passive kind of waiting. It's an active sort of uh, waiting. It's full of expectation. And he's waiting for Yahweh the covenant God of Israel. And so he's waiting and waiting upon Yahweh. And he begins this song by testifying to what his God, his faithful God, has done for him. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. A word that means that God stooped down to listen to him, to hear him, and then reached into this spot he was stuck in to rescue him and to pull him up. He inclined to me. The transcendent God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God who spoke this universe into existence, heard the painful cry of His servant, and He reached down to rescue Him. And He brought me up, he says in verse 2, out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Different versions of the Bible say this differently. Yours may say uh, the miry clay, or a slippery pit, or a slimy pit. I have a friend who's going to Cambridge and he's what, where I'm from call a smart guy and he's going to study Semitic languages and, and Old Testament stuff and, and I don't even know what it's called. That's, that's the difference between him and I but I like him and I called him my phone a friend in a moment of need, because I was studying this verse, and I called him last night on the car phone. My wife's car has the phone that you talk in. Again, I'm a caveman from a different time. You talk to the car. The voice comes through. My kids are in the back. There's four of them, and I'm asking him questions about what this Hebrew word is all about, because it's the word for cistern, that thing that Jeremiah fell into, and it has an adjective on it that's, that's like muddish, and, and I, I, I'm trying to figure it out, and so instead of doing hard work, I just called a smart guy. And he picks up the phone, I picture him smoking a pipe and holding his glasses like this, and, and I ask him, tell me about this, this Hebrew word, and, and so we keep going back and forth, and, and we're saying this phrase, slimy pit, Suddenly I can no longer hear my friend because my four children who are five and seven and nine and eleven are hysterically doubled over laughing at the word slimy pit. For them, slimy pit is an armpit, it's slimy, (laughs) it's some kind of Spongebob moment that they're having. That's like a gross out joke and and I I don't, so I never was able to figure out what this word means. (laughs) I'm kidding, I did, but... (laughs) They heard all these adjectives and it made them laugh because it was muck and mire and slime and silt. You know, these reservoirs in the ancient world were intended for storage of water, not fresh water. Rainwater would fall in and when they, uh, when a time of drought, they became disused and, and broken and that's how a prophet who said all the wrong things uh, in his people's eyes, about their punishment, got thrown into one. Remember, that happened to Jeremiah. These are muddy kind of things, and David pictures himself in one. Not literally, you understand. There's no account of David getting stuck in an actual cistern, but he uses this metaphor, and it's a powerful metaphor. I mean, that's what metaphors are for. He says, In Psalm 1, blessed is the one that walks in step with the wicked or stands with sinners or sits in the company of mockers. It's not literal walking and standing and sitting. They're metaphors for intimate involvement in life. And poetry's full of those kind of things. And and when we read in Psalm 84, the Lord is a sun and a shield, we know that God isn't a sun or a shield. We know He's the source of blessing and a protector metaphors expose a richness of meaning and this miry clay this moment that he's been rescued from that he's trying to describe to us in his testimony of god's deliverance is a metaphor that involves compression of whatever it was that happened to him and concentration of that. It's a shorthand way of bringing all the connotations and associations with his difficulty into this moment and just calling it a slimy, muddy, miry pit This is David's metaphoric description of God's past rescue of him, and it involves going from the mire and being lifted up and set on a rock, making his footsteps firm. None of this is, is literal language. This is all metaphorical language. So maybe because we're literalists, big time around here, we like to define stuff. You're wondering what incident in the life of David does this record? And I'm very happy to tell you I don't have a fat clue. Nobody does. And I think that's what I like about this song. The mystery, uh, the mystery, the, the strange kind of metaphor just shows the universal applicability of this whole thing. I don't know what it was. Was it a personal crisis with his son Absalom? Was it the betrayal of a friend? Was it David's own sin? Was it the big sin with Bathsheba? Was it one of the countless sins he refers to that were as numerous as the the hairs on his head? Was it conflict with others? Was it the death of someone close to him? We don't know. And I think that helps us to recognize that when we hear the words that is David's metaphoric description of God's past rescue of him being drawn up, God's ear inclined towards David, him leaning down and and drawing him out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and then setting his feet upon a rock and making his footsteps firm, we see the universal applicability of this kind of a metaphor for us. I mean, there is a a similarity between physical rescue from a bog and the poet's deliverance from a personal crisis, but David doesn't specify his crisis. Intentionally, he leaves the occasion uh, mysterious and expresses it poetically and amplifies its applicability to us. Friends, it's helpful to think that some of us have been in similar bogs, we've been in slimy pits. Some of you have seen the bottom of cisterns, and many of you have spent much time in a pit. And I'm not talking about your disgusting dorm room. For David, they were almost uncountable. The dark depression, the real danger, they're surrounded by enemies, the friends and family who betrayed him, his own son, a rebel unto death, the loss of a child, the broken heart before God, as he would say, as as I alone have sinned against you and you alone. David knew bogs. He knew slimy pits. And by the end of this song, he's in a second one. Multifaceted in their danger and darkness. And whether it's personal sin that got you in there, which it was for David sometimes, verse 12, or whether it's a hostile world persecuting you, verse 14 and 15, it was for David. James Montgomery Boyce says, muddy times may be the experience even of the greatest saints in slimy pits, the lot of even kings and preachers. And so when life is the pits, we have to remember testimonies of God's deliverance of us from those times in the past. The first example for you would be your salvation. You remember when you heard and believed and received the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and He rescued you from your lostness. Maybe it was when you were a young child. Maybe it was just this semester. But you remain aware and grateful of God's redemption of you from your sin. A big rescue. Or maybe you remember an incident of God's deliverance in a smaller matter. He helped you last year. You were in a bad place and He sent someone to minister to you, to encourage you. Perhaps you've pleaded with God to answer a prayer and, and you have received that answer in just a classic way that God answers prayer. An unguessable way. A divinely wonderful way. A way that brought you so much joy and so much gratitude. David would have you recount those deliverances. Recount those salvations. Remember what God has done to rescue you and to bring you out of the miry clay personal sins, relational problems, broken friendships, health problems, marriage troubles, wayward children, loss of a loved one. There's a thousand overwhelming miry clay pits in front of you in life in a fallen world. And what will be behind you is all these evidences and memories of ways God has redeemed you and rescued you from your trouble in the past. And you will be able to face trouble in the future. Troubles that you don't know about, that you think you could never handle at this stage in age, that aren't for you yet, but you will be able to look back on the ways that God has helped you, and God has delivered you, and God has inclined His ear towards you, and God has listened to you, and He's bent down, He's stooped down, and He's picked you up, and He put you in a place of solid thinking of stability, of gratitude, of joy, of worship, and you remember that. So when you face trouble again, and I promise you will, you'll be ready because you remember how God saved you before, and you're confident that God can save you again. That's the testimony of David. Verse 3, he decides to compose a song about it. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. He waited and he waited and in God's timing, he experienced deliverance from Yahweh. He rested in the Lord, Psalm 37, and waited patiently for Him. And God answered his prayer. This cry of urgency was met with a mingling of hope, verse 3, and trust, verse 4. And the emphasis of this opening section isn't primarily telling you to do anything. I'm not saying that you've got to be patient, though you should. I'm not saying you've got to trust, though you should. I'm not saying you've got to hope, though you should because these opening verses are all about what God has done, and that's what David is celebrating. Five consecutive divine actions. God noted and heard his trouble. God listened to his prayer. God lifted him up out of the pit. God set his feet on a rock, and God placed a new song in his mouth. Who did all that? It wasn't David. It wasn't those close associates of David. It wasn't the attendants of the king. It was God and God alone. And so God would get the glory and God would be seen as the deliverer. And David would sing a song and even the song would be attributed to the creative rescue of God. It's not a reference that this is a song that's never been sung before. Instead, this concept of new song, also in Psalm 33, is the idea of being Taken afresh with the majesty and salvation and omnipotence and wonder of God, to see his care and his providence and his salvation and to respond in gratitude. So he sees and fears in verse 3. I love that kind of seeing and fearing. Reminds me of Moses' words in Exodus do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Believers have a way of being afraid and not afraid, of uh, fearing the Lord but fearing nothing else. And that rescue then leads to our middle section. It's a reflection on God's goodness. He recounts God's deliverance in 1 through 4, and then he reflects on God's goodness starting in, in verse 5. Look what it says, many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Verse 5 is about the wonders and thoughts of God. Wonders are a reference to God's past miraculous deeds on behalf of his people. Maybe you haven't seen too many rescues in your short life. Thankfully, God has recorded the rescues He has made on behalf of His people for us. We can recount those, the wonders of God. He rehearses the thoughts of God. That refers to God's sovereign plans on behalf of His people, that God has a path that He has for you. And so David here reflects on God's goodness and he rejoices in these words and he begins to recount that deliverance and reflect on God's character as a result of it because he learned something about God in his troubles. He doesn't want to go back into a pit, but what he learned in the pit is of incredible value that makes him recognize that he is truly a blessed man, verse 4. And that the trust that he has in God is because God is worth trusting. And so he rejects pride, he rejects falsehood. And then in verse 5, he recounts the thoughts and wonders of God, calls them incomparable, calls them innumerable. And then he thinks about his obligations to worship, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here, David now, he sees his reflection on God's goodness as an occasion to rejoice in God and to obey God. I wonder if you've struggled with obedience to God. I bet you have. I have. I believe that there's a corollary between our obedience to God and our rejoicing in God, and you see it in this passage. You See, David recognizes what God has done for him. And in recognizing God's good character and God's good work, he, he's rejoicing in it. He suddenly comes to realize that he has obligations to God. He owes God his very best. And so in typical Israelite fashion, he thinks of sacrifice. But it's not sacrifice that's ultimate. David understands what God has always wanted. He's wanted His people's hearts. And so without saying anything contrary to what Moses wrote in the Torah, without demeaning or belittling sacrifices, David goes to the very heart of sacrifices as the priests and prophets of the Old Testament always understood and said that it was the obedience of David's heart, the delight to do his will, the opening of David's ears. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required, verse 6. But God wanted David to listen to Him and to delight in His will, and to have that law written on his heart. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 10 that these words, he quotes them in Hebrews 10.6. David probably only had a little inkling of the understanding of what this would come to mean. That David wasn't ultimately talking about himself when he said that he would offer his ear and his body to do God's will. But it would be David's greater son who in the Greek translation of this verse would take that metaphor about God digging an ear in verse 6 for David and Jesus would apply it to himself and say, you have prepared a body for me. Just a switch of the metaphor. An ear is part of the body. It's no big deal. There's nothing to be alarmed about. Intertextual Bible nerds. Jesus says, you've prepared a body for me. I'm here to worship you. I belong all the way to you. And there's a relationship between David's rejoicing and David's obedience and there's a relationship between Jesus's rejoicing in God and Jesus's obedience to his father and so this practice of digging the ear here that's uh, indicated of God opening up his servant's ear sounds just like Isaiah 50 verse 4 and uh, Psalm 40 verse 6 through 8 uh, the recital of these words to the Messiah in Hebrews chapter 10 is all reminding us that David could not fulfill these words fully but the Messiah could in His giving up not just His ear, not just His obedience but all of Him in the superseding of the sacrificial system. This is not a messianic psalm in its entirety because David confesses his sinfulness in verses that follow but this section is a particular statement that is so applicable to the life of Christ and so helpful to you and I in our battle against sin and in our battle for joy, in our battle for obedience, that Jesus is the one who fully fulfilled this in relation to his obedience and bodily sacrifice. And verse 6 speaks of sacrifices and offerings, celebrating communion with God, the removal of the effects of sin. And Jesus would replace them all by becoming a once for all sacrifice. David gets it, and I hope you get it too. No mere ritual will adequately express his gratitude. So he offers himself to God from the heart. And then his greater son would come and offer himself to God from the heart and would solve the sin problem for David and for all of us. One author says it this way, Jesus not only listens and obeys, he offers his whole body as a once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. But the reflection on God's goodness continues. The scroll of the book is the law of Moses. It reminds me of Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those He redeemed from the hand of the foe. And David now has turned his personal praise to congregational focus. Verse 9, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, You know, Friend, when you're in a pit, when life is the pits, when you're in a trial, when you're in the mud and you're in the mire, do you understand that God is preparing you to lead his people in worship? Because they're not all going to understand what you're going through. They're not going to understand the texture and the drama and the pain that you're seeing in these moments of difficult despair. But you need to understand what David is testifying as he's rejoicing and he's seeking to obey and he's seeking to offer himself that God is making him a worship leader. And it doesn't mean you have to have a handsome, slim-fitting clothing like this gentleman. It wouldn't look right on me because of my, my shapes and edges. But I am a worship leader. And though I only know three chords on the guitar, I lead God's people in worship when I proclaim Him in my difficult circumstances. I show them that they ought to be encouraged that believers can face trials and endure. That in the darkest moments of the pit, in the clay, in the miry mud, when you're waiting upon waiting, and you're crying out to God, and you're waiting for that answer, and then you've been delivered, but you know another pit is coming, your testimony of being delivered, of having your prayers answered, of being rescued from your sin, of being brought out of sinful bad habits, of making it through that section of life where you made a plethora of dumb decisions, God will be be praised as you have been rescued and he has been extolled publicly. You, O Lord, he says. You, O Lord, know. And you have, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Look at that he reflects and rejoices in God's character because it's just pouring out of his mouth look how he prays out God's character he's a theologian he says God's righteousness pours out of his mouth what is God's righteousness in the Old Testament it's it's the unchanging way of his nature and then he speaks of God's faithfulness. What is God's faithfulness? It's the pledge that God will always honor His Word and not one word will fall that utters from God's mouth. And he extols God's salvation. What is salvation? Well, it's His acts on behalf of His people. And then he speaks of God's loving kindness or His said. What is that? It's His motivation. For all that He does for His people is based and rooted and grounded in His love for His people. And then he speaks of God's truth. And that speaks of who God is and how we can rely on Him. And so pouring forth speech about God's righteousness, His faithfulness, His salvation, His said, His truth, and to think He was just in a pit. But He's out and His feet are on firm ground and He has to testify to it. And He wants you to hear Him say that He's recounted God's deliverance and He's reflected on God's goodness and character. And now finally, how's this thing end? Verses 11-17, he requests deliverance yet again. Why couldn't we end at verse 10? Look at the turn here in verse 11. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me An awareness of need. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. He's finishing up his praise, but... Verse verse 12 says, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities has overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. David, you're on stable ground. God lifted you up out of the pit. Why are we going here again? Enemies are still around him. It's an undeniable reality. And it turns out his heart is still dealing with sin. And not picky little sins either. He's talking about sins as numerous as the hairs of his head. And then he portrays his own weakness. My heart has failed me. And yet again, verse 13, he makes this petition to God. Once again, he expresses his need for God. God has to help David. David's in trouble again. And so he cries out, Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me, verse 13. Make haste, O Yahweh, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame. The enemies gather around and they make a a despairing noise. Aha! Aha! They point at his iniquities and they point at his enemies and they point at his despair and they point at his desperation and they say, we just heard you singing. You sang about deliverance. And now you're sliding back into the pit. Aha! Aha! It's enough to undo you, right? It's enough to shut down the praise. It's enough to give up. But David's great example here is that he begins his song By reflecting on God's deliverance, and he ends his song by requesting God's deliverance. And he asks for God to hear, and he asks for God to answer. And David has not grown sick of this. David knows that it's the nature of being a fallen creature in a fallen world, that this is where our prayers will always go. In this life, Jesus promised there will be trouble. Paul told Timothy that those who live for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Life in a fallen world is futile and difficult. Solomon called it vanity, and he was not wrong. You get rescued out of one pit, and you slide into another. And the scorn and derision of these people don't stop him. In fact, he keeps on leading the congregation in verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. Friend, I'm not trying to lower your expectations in this world and and make you peek around every corner of your future, you know, thinking God's going to whack you with a stick and put you in a pit again in His sovereign love. I am trying to remind you that we don't live in the garden anymore and that Jesus hasn't come back and set all things right. And so we've got to learn to pray for deliverance because we're going to need deliverance for all the days of our lives. What I'm trying to show you is what Colossians 3 2 says. Set your affections on things above and not on the earth. And when you do that, you'll quickly look for deliverance and you'll look to the right place. You'll look to Yahweh. What happened in this song? Initially, he was rescued and delivered. But we understand that deliverance in this life, on this earth, isn't going to be final. Because in verse 12, his sin remained. In verse 13 and 15, His enemies remained. In verse 17, His weakness remained. But what else remains? Verse 13, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Verse 13, Make haste, O Lord, to help me verse 16 let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you let those who love your salvation say continually Yahweh be magnified verse 17 I'm afflicted and needy let the Lord be mindful of me you are my help and my deliverer do not delay oh my God this song doesn't end on a sour note it ends in reality the reality of a life that loves the deliverance of God, that loves His rescue on display, that knows that though sin remains and though enemies remain and though weakness remains, Yahweh remains. He'll always be there. He'll always be ready to hear us. He'll always be ready to rescue us until the day when we don't need deliverance anymore, when He sets all things right, when this wearisome life is over and He takes us home. Because this world is not a place of final deliverance. He will bring us to final deliverance in His good time. So between now and then, though our sin remains and though they yell, Aha! 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 We keep looking to Yahweh because we know He remains and that in the end He will set our feet on a rock. The rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be His forever and trouble and weakness and infirmity and sin and enemies will no longer be it'll be glory forever father thank you for your truth we need it and I pray for students who are going through stuff right now that you would stoop down and rescue them and remind them of your immovable fidelity of your unshakable stability, of your unwavering faithfulness. We're quick, God, to confess our sin and weakness. Make us be quick to ask for help, to seek divine assistance, waiting and waiting as we look back and we see all that you've done to rescue us. And we look up and offer our cry. And we look ahead and we know That we will see pits, but we will also see the repeated deliverance of our God. And then finally, Lord, you'll take us to your presence, delivered forever and ever and ever, to glory and to joy and to Jesus. We want to sing to you, O God, in response.